Uh, my youngest turned 10 a uh, couple of weeks ago. Two weeks before his birthday, I asked him what he wanted. He's 10. He's a huge Lego fan. It's an easy question, easy answer. Uh, and he says to me, I'd like a baby brother. I mentioned we have three. I said to him, buddy, that is not going to happen. There's just not enough time anyway. And uh, I love what he said. He said, well, why don't you do what you do at work when you're under time pressure? Put more men on the job. I'm like, no, dude, that... <laughs> you don't understand. So... Uh, Andrew's put some more men on the job. We've got a panel discussion now. So, Andrew, I'm going to ask you to come to the front and introduce your panelists to us. Uh, and then we're going to open the floor to questions. We have enough roving mics. So, uh, any questions that you haven't been able to ask yet, now's your chance. Andrew, why don't you give him a round of applause? Thank you so much. New technologies and investments. I think there's no doubt that most of us feel a very big impact of technology in our lives. And we've heard about it this morning. So the focus today is very much on investments, asset management, um, and there are a number of different factors. And even in, in thinking about preparing for the panel, I realized that the challenge was not how to fill the time, but how to make sure that we didn't overwhelm ourselves with too many different topics to discuss, because there really is a huge amount. And the interesting thing about technology from an investment point of view is that there's the investment side of things, but there's the impact of technology on the economy and on companies and the impact of that on the decision-making of, of, invest, of investors. Um, so I've been, I've been instructed to call up the panel, panelists one by one. I'm not sure if that's because of like a boxing thing. We're hoping for a real um, debate going on here. So the first panelist is Megan Burnett. She's from Prudential. She's the chief investment officer. So, Megan, can you come and join me on the stage here? <laughs> Sorry, Chief Operating Officer. I'm confused. Um, and then we've got Jason Little at the back. He is uh, uh, the head of institutional clients at APSA Investments. Uh, so, if, J if Jason can join us on the stage. And then finally, we've got Neville Chester. He's one of the senior uh, investment portfolio members of Coronation. And he's going to be joining us as well as soon as he can get a mic. So yeah, we have a, what's useful about the panel we've got is that they do have very different skill sets and that's quite valuable. So we do have not an, a chief investment officer but an operating officer. And the valuable thing about that obviously is we can explore the impact of technology on the operations and the efficiencies and the cost savings that asset managers can achieve. We've got someone who is more client facing and obviously there, it's very much discussing the aspects of advice, uh, robo-advice, those sorts of things, algorithms and the ability to customize investment portfolios for individuals, and finally, the investment decision maker. What is the impact of technology on decision making and on portfolios and the construction and the selection of stocks? So, yeah, without further ado, uh, we are going to try and explore five sort of broad themes. One is technology as a threat. The other one is technology as a decision-making tool for the asset manager. Then technology and its impact on the actual environment and stocks and whether technology is truly a game changer. In other words, you, you should just have technology stocks and forget about everything else in your portfolio. Or if there is still a need for a diversified portfolio, um, and then, obviously, from an operational, as I say, the technology uh, impact there. And the final, the fifth area, is the client interaction, the client-facing part. But before I start on those, on those five areas, I'm going to ask the panelists one 
question, the same question to all of them, and that is, what one technological advancement do they think will have the biggest impact on the asset management space in the next 10 years? So, Megan, if you would, would mind... Uh, Thanks. Um, I think the answer is simply there isn't just one technology that will <laughs> impact uh, all the investment uh, management businesses. I think Michael touched on it earlier, and I think that data really is the catalyst for all the technologies that are out there. Um, it will be the use of that technology around our data that will really be the differentiator in terms of the way the investment markets go. Um, from, from my perspective, um, I think blockchain um, has the biggest potential to, to disrupt the industry. Um, I, I think it's the newest of the technologies, um, of the emerging um, technologies, um, and has yet to, to prove itself in terms of scalability, but the, the capacity and capability that it has to change operating models and to change the industry itself is, is fundamentally, for me, the biggest game changer um, that will come. Okay. Um, maybe just a follow-up question on that. Where do you think the possible areas are where blockchain could be used in asset management? Well, I mean, there's, if you look at the asset management um, value chain, it, it, doesn't, you know, it doesn't just relate to the investment side mm -hmm. of the business. It starts right through from the, the settlement cycles. Um, and it depends on how you want to look at it. If you want to look at it um, like Kim did earlier, I mean, blockchain has the capability to completely change the whole operating model. So to move to a, a world where instruments and bonds are traded as tokens, that would fundamentally change the end-to-end -end, uh, industry. Um, I don't think that is uh, a million miles away. Um, but certainly on the most, more practical side of things, we're already seeing blockchain solutions in the UK around the, the transfer agency side of the business. We're seeing blockchain solutions around proxy voting, um, really just to, to, to streamline and make the, the, the processing side more efficient. Um, but taken to the extreme, it could just change the whole way the industry works. Okay, and maybe just a, another question related to that is, when are we going to see the first fact sheet that's just a QR code? And you get to see your portfolio manager, what their hobbies are, and then uh, where they constructed the portfolio. Where they constructed it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, yeah, that's not a concept that I've, uh, I've thought about, to be honest. Um, it, I'm assuming it was directed at me. Um, whenever you, you want to, I guess, mm -hmm. is, the, is the answer. The, I think all the information's already there. So if you attach the QA code to the fact sheets now and you had the right databases in the background, I think you could provide that information pretty quickly. Okay. I can Thank give an answer to that. <laughs> when your clients who are 60 today have passed on and those who are 30 today become your clients because yes. you know, today a large number of the clients are retired and they're still like the... Feel of paper. And they, they have the assets, obviously. That's right, yeah. Okay, so maybe, Jason, if I can ask you that same question uh, about which technology you think has the biggest impact. Thanks, Andrew. Um, I think for me, without a doubt, you know, the asset management industry, and you're also taking a little bit from my time as an investment professional, I mean, without a doubt, without flogging a, a, a dead horse, hopefully, but, you know, Michael spoke a lot about AI. And, you know, in asset management, you work with a hell of a lot of data. Um, and uh, 
date from that data, um, the investment professionals and also those on the client side need to have insights um, um, from which they want to make forecasts and prediction. So um, from that perspective, to the extent that AI can help in actually um, uh, stepping up and, and, and improving our forecasts and predictions, um, to the extent that AI can give us better insights about what's happening with our clients, it's certainly going to be the, the biggest factor that's going to um, separate, I think, the winners from the losers. But uh, even at this initial point, and I don't want to sort of say that it's a all or nothing. Um, it's not as if, you know, um, it's going to lead to immense job losses. I mean, if anything, um, and we'll touch on the risk, but if anything, it's actually... It's just going to mean that you know you're going to retain your your current uh, uh, team of professional investment professionals as well as your 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 clients facing team, but uh, you're probably not going to have to increase the number to be able to eke out that incremental amount of value. So um, AI will definitely hopefully reduce reduce costs if it's done well done well and done right, um, but uh, it should also improve predictions not just on how clients behave but also um, in terms of uh, our forecasts and predictions and the insights that we get. I mean, we know that uh, computers don't just read text and, and numbers. Uh, they can also see here. And to Michael's earlier presentation, they can also speak. So, um, yeah, AI for me, yeah. Okay. So maybe just a follow-up question on that then. So as Michael also said, you know, AI... It's one of those terms that gets used for a whole range of things which are not necessarily all AI. So at the moment, a lot of what is labeled AI is actually very rudimentary. Um, and obviously, there, there is a lot of room for, uh, for further enhancements and further uh, development in the space of AI. But one of the graphs that Michael showed, and it's actually interesting, it's the second time in the last month that I've seen that graph, or a similar graph, but produced by completely different people, where, which is where the index is at the bottom and all smart beta is above that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, and I know that your background is also a little bit about smart beta and Satrix, yeah. so I'm going to ask that question of you. you know, is it all so smart? that every, every smart beta beats the index. Yeah, I see Evan Gilbert in the front row is uh, <laughs> laughing, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there's that quip in the industry. I mean, show me a back test that looks bad. Um, yeah, it's, uh, look, it's, yeah, and, and there's lots to say about whether smart beta is the correct term or anything like to think about it as risk factors. Um, you know, over the last 10 years, um, if anything that has actually aided one is better insights into what and how your portfolio is actually constructed and where are those actual um, um, uh, novel and new areas that can actually diversify uh, uh, what, what you currently have in your portfolio that's going to actually help you atta attain your, your end outcome. So, I mean, from that perspective, there's definitely work that has helped uh, in this space to show that there are risk factors out there and call them price momentum, earnings revision, uh, quality, that actually span the market widely. When I say span, I mean for exposing yourself to that level of risk. You can add a premium over time with that and they do diversify well with one another. 
um, that can lead to better outcomes. But, uh, you know, just like in the active space, um, I think there will still be, a, there's still definitely a role for active uh, managers. Um, it's just that uh, one must appreciate that skill is rare. Um, one also needs to be very cognizant in the smart beta space or in the factor space um, about being a lot more sober when you're looking at back tests, um, uh, about whether those actual strategies are working or whether they aren't. So um, it, it definitely calls for uh, um, um, you know, sober, sober minds. And maybe just a further question on that is, obviously one of the areas where AI or machine learning could be useful is in the model learning where the backtesting is now changing, or the numbers that were produced in the past are no longer going to be effective in the future. Um, but, it, but it feels like maybe we're not at that level of sophistication yet, but maybe that's where we uh, could be going. Yeah, that's right. I mean, any sort of in the AI setting, and, and I know um, AI is pretty much a salad bowl, could be from talking about robotics or anything. I suppose we're just talking about those engines that um, uh, more along the lines of machine learning. Yeah, it, yes, it, uh, this, 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 this AI system is allowed to learn, it's allowed to, to make predictions, but it also learns based on the kind of data that it's fed and allowed to learn from as well. And as you say, um, you know, things change. Mm. Capital markets change. You know, the capital markets of 10 years ago even are arguably very different to how things function today. Investors' behaviors change. Mm. So um, I think your AI system also needs to cater for that somehow um, in terms of new data sets, new areas of learning and the like. But, um, yeah, it, it's definitely uh, not something that, you know, one needs to have just rose-tinted glasses on about. Mm. Okay, thank you, Jason. Um, Neville, mm. same question to you. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, a little bit of an echo chamber here, yeah? and I think, I mean, it's, it's big data without a doubt, um, and how it's used is, is going to have the biggest effect um, on the investment world going forward. If you take active management and the analysis, um, you know, everyone is always looking for advantage, pouring over different data sets, trying to identify, um, you know, in publicly available information, trends, uh, issues that can basically give you the edge. Um, historically, that's been performed by analysts. Um, increasingly, you're just seeing these enormous data sets becoming available, um, and you can do increasingly interesting things. And because of the global nature of the internet and the global nature of those data pools, that, that data is becoming more and more powerful in being able to identify significant trends. So whereas before, uh, you know, an analyst sitting in one particular geographic region might only have the ability to pick up localized trends, um, increasingly in, in a globally connected world, those big global data sets uh, can give you massive forecasting powers. Um, and I mean, that comes with, with huge complications and questions, um, massive challenges for the active management industry because that data is owned by non-traditional competitors potentially, um, and big ethical questions around you know, who actually owns that data and did you sign up for that? I mean, uh, just reading a broker report locally this morning, um, Lightstone, who's a property consultancy company, um, has teamed up with Tracker and basically released a whole uh, load of stats just showing vehicular behavior in South Africa. How, you know, with petrol price going up, how fewer trips people are taking, where they're taking them to, um, which petrol stations they're stopping at. You know, phenomenal data, but, you know, I don't think anyone that bought a tracker 
signed up to become part of this big data experiment. Um, and similarly, when you swipe your Visa card, when you carry your Android phone around, you are providing a huge amount of data to, to these uh, industries and what they can do with it um, is, is a big issue. And you know, is that public information? Um, you know, one can argue individually uh, it might be irrelevant, but when you sum it into these big pools, you have material non-public information over what potentially two to three billion consumers are doing, um, which gives one incredible insights. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that that is uh, without a doubt very, very, you know, and it's rather, you know, AI is coming in, you know, in gradual increments, big data is here. Uh, it is something that's very real and prevalent and I think will have a big impact um, in, in the immediate future. Thanks, Neville. Um, so, just on, on the big data, obviously none of us would argue with the fact that there's lots of data around, but the difficulty is extracting the meaningful stuff. And yeah. what's, what's quite amazing is that the same examples actually get trotted out all the time. I mean, not to attack Michael, but I've seen the Walmart parking lot thing mm -hmm. from about six or seven different sources now. Mm -hmm. And it, it feels like it's this, I've seen the oil one as well, you know, I've seen the hotel one as well. So in other words, it feels as though, even though there's a lot of data, everyone's got the same idea, everyone's got the same sources. I mean, if I ask people in the room, how many people have News 24 on their phone? If I ask the question, only a few? No, a lot, yes. Mm. So in other words, all of those people are getting their news yeah. from the same source. So we're, in, in some ways, there's a convergence of information mm. that we all get the same information all the time and, and, and maybe finding information elsewhere is going to be the edge. But of course, it, so in other words, it maybe is reinforcing the herd mentality to some extent. Yeah. Yeah, look, I mean, we know social media platforms like Facebook are echo chambers, mm. and it actually just reflects back to you the news you want to hear. So, I mean, we're all listening to News 24. I'm mm. sure there's some people listening or, you know, prefer other sources mm. who will have a different take. Um, but, you know, it, it is around, as I said, those, those other pools of data which arguably aren't in the public domain. So, you know, mm. the, the big data sets that a lot of the global IT tech companies have aren't publicly available. Mm. Um, so yeah, we can all look at Google Maps and we can all have that information and you can you know, run a, a fairly smart software program over that looking for things, but uh, it's really around these, these bigger, um, more bespoke pools of data, I think, that, that there will be interesting things and that's where the advantage will be, absolutely right. You know, today, the greatest challenge is that there's too much data um, and a lot of it is superfluous. Mm. It's around cutting through that and then identifying the trends as well because sometimes, again, you might see a trend and not understand the reason behind it. So, you know, that's where the interpretation and hopefully, for my career, mm. where the, the active, you know, analysis of it and trying to understand why a trend might be doing what it is uh, comes into play. Mm. So maybe just for one uh, final question on this section for you, Neville, is does coronation have any ideas of, in, of uh, employing a robot to, uh, to do some analysis at this stage, or is that still a way off? Yeah, yeah look, at the moment it's, it's more around consultancies. So, I mean, we use various consultancies, again, with different specializations. So, 
Um, at the moment, we're using one analyzing trends around retail trends in the UK. We are an investment in a company that owns a number of large shopping centers in the UK. So we'll use bespoke projects. Um, you know, it's, again, there's you know, certain companies which have different skill sets or have better data sets than other. So at the moment, it's very much, you know, you don't want to own it. You don't want to have, you know, a trillion terabytes sitting in your own mm. office. You want to go specifically on specific projects um, and focus in on them. But, you know, are we doing it? Absolutely. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, and, and I think it's, you know, if you aren't doing it, you, you will be behind uh, a, a key trend. Mm. Okay, let me talk about my five uh, technology areas now, maybe. Um, so there is some overlap with what we've already chatted about, but the first one that I wanted to just uh, touch on is technology as a threat. Um, because obviously there are a lot of advantages, but there are also a lot of threats that are introduced. So maybe just, um, maybe this, uh, f still for you, uh, Neville, mm. things like flash crashes, mm. you know, the stuff that Michael was talking about, about getting closer to... The, the JSC, for example, um, you know, have you got a caravan outside the JSC where you're actually trading your stocks now? Or, or does it, uh, is that important? So, yeah. m so the obvious thing is for a long-term investor, you might say, I don't care about that. But the counter argument to that is the Team Sky argument for cycling. They said, well, we're all, we're all world class. So every second counts. So if I can get my stocks, all of them 0.1% cheaper because of uh, speed of trading, yeah. it makes a difference. Yeah, I guess one can ask questions around exactly how Team Sky are getting those extra seconds. Uh, <laughs> the, you know, the, for us, so, I mean, you answered you know, to my question, we are long-term investors. For us, the fundamentals far outweigh the ability to, to garner a couple of seconds, but there are businesses out there today, that is their entire business model. Mm. I mean, a wonderful stat, um, which was, I think it's probably about, I think it was about 10 years ago, the average holding period of a stock on the New York Stock Exchange was mm. about 60 days. Um, you know, today, the average holding period of a stock, so the average holding period is two seconds. Mm. That is the average holding period of a stock. Um, and that is just because you have these algos who are let loose mm. and are buying and trading, buying and trading um, exactly this in the hopes of gaining in infinitesimal you know, margins. Um, so the risk does come in when they, when they get carried away, and, and we've seen this once or twice. Um, and the remarkable thing is you know, if, if an error happens and, and, and a company actually makes a profit out of it, you don't ever see any comeback. If an error happens and a company loses a whole lot of money, they're very quickly on the phone saying, oh, it was a mistake, unwind it, reverse all the trades. So there is a certain asymmetry around how these errors are dealt with. Um, and yeah, so I mean, you do see the need for more things like circuit breakers, etc., to be put into the system in order to be, prevent uh, unintended consequences of you know, the computer mm. running away um, but without a doubt, if you look at the way stocks react today to very marginal misses, um, you know, there's definitely not a human hand mm. um, behind the orders that, the, that are flooding in. Um, it is, is something, and it's creating a lot more volatility. Um, and the big risk to the savings industry long term is it just creates distrust in the system. Um, you know, if people start thinking it's a casino, if they start looking at the volatility and say it's crazy, and yesterday you thought the company was worth X, today it's Y, 
you know, this I think is a big risk in that it starts to undermine, I think, a lot of trust in the system. Mm. Jason, yeah? Sorry, this is on. Um, if I can just add to that, yeah, I, I also, I mean, there's definitely risks. I mean, just to your point on the flash crash, um, I've been doing, doing a little read uh, in my reading as well as uh, 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 watching this video on this guy that worked in the high frequency trading environment. Yeah, the capital markets to work, they need to 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 be an environment where there's healthy price discovery and where there's liquidity. And what happened was is that this. Uh, well, it was actually a few algos, I think, uh, just got spun out and they just went down a spiral and they started to just sell S&P mini warrants and it just, like, it just plunged the market down to uh, a, a level where, you know, there was just so, sort of no return. And the, the worst of it was is that this high-frequency trading algo guy was looking at this. with P He's a PhD and he's, he's, he's a PhD in maths and he's done all his work and he said he was looking at the screen of bids and offers coming in, and they dried up for 30 seconds. There was not one bid, not one offer. So from that perspective, are these technologies a, a risk for our capital markets? Yes, uh, they probably are. And so, you know, to Neville's point about circuit breakers, yeah. But I think uh, um, it's also important that we sort of use them responsibly as well. I mean, we spoke on social media platforms, news as well, Twitter. Everyone's got Twitter on their phones. Um, we all know about the Associated Press uh, account that got hacked. Uh, S&P went down like something like seven to nine percent because there was uh, reports that the White House got bombed, and then when everyone found out like a couple of minutes later, it was fine, and it just went back up like that again. You know, um, uh, th those there's also um, risks in terms of security. The cost of being connected, um, have, there are risks to security, risks to privacy. Mm. So um, yeah, there's, there's, we definitely need to be a little more responsible. Um, in how we actually implement and mm. and, and and advance technology. Mm. Okay, so Megan, maybe on to you then. In terms of those risks and the threats, as a chief operating officer, that must at least give you one or two sleepless nights of the cyber threats and the attacks on your your systems as a as an asset manager, particularly when there are billions of rands that you have um, under your custodianship. Yeah, I mean, uh, fortunately, the, the assets in custody are with the custodian, mm. not specifically sitting on my systems, which allows me to sleep a little easier than the banking system. But um, I think that the big risk on the on the cybersecurity side is, you know, data has really become the crown jewel. Um, Michael mentioned earlier, you know, data is becoming more and more important. We've, Neville's just mentioned in terms of privacy and, and where that data goes. And I think for us as an investment community, the biggest risk in our data is the personal data that sits there. It's our client data. It's the exposure of our client data um, and client lists. I think, you know, we've had examples of that in the industry where um, things have gone awry. And um, I, I guess the, the thing that, you know, keeps me awake at night certainly is that from a cybersecurity perspective, we always need to try and stay one step ahead of these guys. Mm. Um, and, and I think it's not a matter of, of if we will get um, some sort of cyber attack on, of, of various proportions, it's a matter of when. Mm. Um, and there's been some positive um, work together in the, in the industry, in the CISA industry on this, where the, uh, call it the info security guys or the cyber geeks within our organizations have got together 
um, trying to form a, a community where we actually work on a, on a, on a WhatsApp group. Um, and the minute one of our, these organizations is hacked or there's some sort of uh, malicious attack, um, these geeks share the information with each other. And, mm -hmm. and, and we're literally able to, to get ahead of the curve in terms of the, the consortiums that are working out there. And to me, you know, without a doubt, there's a lot of technology, but the people in our offices mm -hmm. and our investment community is the biggest defense we have uh, um, against you know, fraud and cyber risk. Mm. Um, and those, those initiatives have really started to pay off in mm. terms of the, you know, the, the CISOs um, or the, the security risk guys in the various organizations. Mm. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I, I'm just a word of warning, I think it's, it's dangerous to use the word geek too much at an actuarial event. Um, <laughs> Um, it's another word for clever. Oh, oh okay. Cerebral. Cerebral. Um, clever. Um, maybe, Neville, back yeah. to you. Um, just the investment theme now. Mm -hmm. So, as you said, you know, given that you hold for longer than two seconds, is a long-term investor two hours? Or, uh, <laughs> um, but no, that's not actually my question, really. I, I'm asking now about the investment theme and game-changer nature of technology. I mean... We know that all the big companies today are the technology firms and, and the FANGs and I heard another acronym yesterday, the BAT, which is Baidu, Alibaba and Tencent. You know, so these are the big players and in fact I was looking at a client's um, investment managers the other day and they've got three offshore managers and all of them in their top ten have NASPAS. And actually we think we're getting diversification by having some offshore managers but they all like, like NASPAS. But the, the interesting thing is, if you look at almost any portfolio on the offshore side, you've got the fangs, and, and then after that, people start thinking about what else they should have. Yeah. You know, is it as simple as saying, well, technology is the winner of the future. We're just going to load up on that, uh, and, and then we don't have much else to do as an asset manager. Um, yeah. <laughs> if you ask a barber if you need a haircut, you're going to get the answer. Um, so obviously, I would disagree with that. I mean, clearly... There's been a number of, of large tech companies um, which have done incredibly well um, for different reasons. I mean, if you look at the Chinese tech stocks, um, they've, you know, incredible businesses, uh, a lot of them well run, um, but a lot of their success due to the very close nature of the Chinese economy and that the U.S. competitors have effectively been prevented from competing there. So it's been wonderful being Baidu because you don't have to compete on search against Google. Um, and guess what? You can pretty much copy anything that Google does and roll it out in the most populous country in the world. So, you know, tech has done well there for certain reasons and, and certain tech stocks have done well. But, you know, there are always winners and losers, as we know, in the tech environment. Um, and just as, you know, some companies done incredibly well, there's a numbers that suddenly, you know, a new tech threat comes out that they, they didn't identify and completely undermines their business model. That is the nature um, of technology. And I always say, I mean, we discussed NASPERS a lot, obviously, and I always say it's, it's a Chinese technology company, um, and of those three words, two of them are terrifying, Chinese and technology, <laughs> because we know, you know what the, the, the risks are in the Chinese economy, and we know what the risks are in the world of technology, is that today's winners very quickly can become tomorrow's losers. We, we were having a, a budget session uh, yesterday, and one of the, the long-time members of staff was talking to me about how uh, one of our previous CEOs used to refer to us as the Nokia 
of the investment world. And I said, please don't, please don't call us that. You know, and that was, you know, 10, 15 years ago, Nokia was the leader. Um, and today, you know, it's an embarrassing brick. Um, so, you know, these, these are the challenges. Um, I think the other big challenge, funny enough, is in the listed space. There was an article in the FT the other day about uh, stock markets around the world hitting all-time highs, yet they are shrinking. And the reality mm. is that fewer and fewer companies are actually going into the publicly listed space um, for a variety of reasons. Um, they're just the burden that, that's placed or expected on public companies versus private companies. The moment you become a public company, you expect it not only to provide returns and wealth for everyone, but you also got to cure all social ills, um, you know, mm. tick every box. Do, and, and the reality is, uh, you know, there's large providers of capital out there today, Blackstones, etc. Um, a lot of these private equity companies, private equity raisings are at an all-time high globally. Um, and they are pumping billions into the tech sector in the private space. So I think the greatest challenge of, of, of what's happening today is that actually we're not seeing the full uh, sets of investments um, that mm. you, you would like to just dealing with the tech space. And maybe, sorry, I've dominated a bit, but the mm. last thing is we are also starting to see very much that trend develop where old world, new world. Um, and yes, there's definitely some industries which will be challenged by the rise of technology, but there are some other industries out there where I think it's, it's gone too far in terms of people's expectations. Um, again, you know, just taking the, the view that physical retail is finished, um, you know, that is an overly pessimistic view. Mm. Uh, there's definite, you've seen even the tech giants are actually going into physical retail today. Amazon opened its first physical bookstore uh, a few months ago, uh, buying Whole Foods in its point of presence you're actually seeing a lot of tech companies suddenly realize there's only so much you can do online. Online is becoming a very com uh, busy and, and, and competitive space, and they're actually finding it's cheaper to acquire customers today by having physical presence, um, which, you know, suddenly you, you are seeing that things change. Mm. Um, so I'd say, you know, it's, it's not all doom and gloom for non-tech businesses. Mm. Yes, Jason. Sorry, if I may. Um, I think Neville's covered the investment side of things um, very comprehensively, but uh, I think, uh, you know, I feel also two sides of the same coin. Um, what's happening in the real economy as well is as much of a problem, I think, for those tech companies. I mean, I've, I've read a few articles where, you know, guys are sort of starting to ask, you know, are these big tech companies too big to fail? Um, you know, how many people are dependent on their livelihoods in terms of how they actually uh, uh, market their products in the, uh, and, and, and reliant on the likes of Facebooks and, 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 and other uh, social media platforms. So I think that's, that's, that's kind of a, I don't know, for me it feels like a little bit uneasy, dangerous rhetoric because it also talks about, you know, um, to what extent are we stifling the healthy competition that exists? And we know Amazon's got like a massive like 40% market share of what's happening in the online retail. But, you know, they're also straying outside of that because they've got such a hold on an understanding of AI that they're actually uh, 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 moving into the supply chain and the logistics business. And they, you know, the extent to which they are going to be phasing out and there'll be anti-competitive uh, practices that are outside of their industry even, you know, um, to, to Neville's point as well. I mean, I don't know how many more clients or how many more companies I think are going to be be coming to market um, because these big tech giants are being regarded as too big to fail. They are just absolutely becoming behemoths and dominant mm. in not just their own industry but others so as well. So mm. the extent to which competition exists is, is also a, a concern. Yeah, absolutely. 
Okay, maybe let's move on then to technology as the enabler or the means to improve efficiency and reduce costs. So, I mean, we heard from Michael, passive is already at zero. Um, you know, what, is, what are your thoughts around, maybe for you, Megan, what are the thoughts around when is Prudential going to offer zero fee products? Um, <laughs> or, or, you know, what are, what are the, how, do we, how do we deal with this race to zero? Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, um, fee pressure is definitely the, the, the topic of the day at any executive uh, meeting at the moment. Um, Prudential won't be offering any free index-priced <laughs> funds in the near future. Um, but I think there is a lot that we can do in terms of, of, um, of helping our businesses towards uh, a lower cost base, um, certainly not a naught cost base. Um, through technology, and, and that's mm. even in the in the active space. Um, I think we've seen it, it's a bit of a tricky thing, depending on the size of your business. Um, you know, we spoke about robotics. Robotics is uh, is, is certainly something that's being used. Uh, extensively in South Africa, overseas, in our businesses. It's not what we think. It's not a robot that works ar walks around. But uh, wherever there's a repeatable process, where there's data capture, you know, getting investor forms, improving that process, there's a lot of cost you can take out of the out of the chain in terms of introducing um, robotics and and also a better product at the end of the mm. day in terms of um, quality um, back to the in investors. Um, other technologies will continue to improve that. Um, you know, we've spoken at nauseam about um, AI and machine learning. Um, you know, I think my my view certainly is that um, in time, um, you know, AI will become the the smartest member of your analyst team, not necessarily the only member, um, but it, it the smartest and the most efficient member. Mm. Um, the amount of data that it can it can process relative to to humans is incomparable, and the costs associated with that would also, over time, um, decrease. So I certainly think there's a lot we can do to reduce costs. Um, but I think for me, and I come back to my initial point, I think the game changer in terms of reducing costs in our industry really comes when the industry starts to collaborate better and have market utility changing mm. type um, technology. So, so by that I mean, uh, you know, taking cost out of the the downstream chain, not where the IP sits in the investment manager, but uh, in the way we contract. We all do AML KYC um, work. Every mm. one of us is um, onboarding uh, similar clients, pretty much the same clients. If you look at the size of the South African industry, there's certainly opportunity there to collaborate better and to to build out some sort of technology based identity utilities that can reduce the cost to the industry and to the investor. Um, and I've no doubt the banks are looking at that within their stables. But again, if, if we collaborated across industry, uh, I've no doubt there's opportunity to use these technologies uh, to bring lower costs and more efficiency and transparency uh, mm. to our market. Thanks. So you, you talked about uh, collaboration, and it's a word you used when we were discussing previously. And because, you, uh, and I think it came from uh, a course that you attended at the Singularity University, which is obviously of great interest given the topic that we're talking about. Can you just give us some insight into what, what those collaborations are about and where, where those could be of value in this yeah. space? Yeah, I mean, I think 
as I, as I mentioned, I mean, blockchain specifically is a technology that, um, I mean, you can implement a private blockchain within your own industry, within your own company, but there, it's, it's a, it's an industry ledger. So mm. if it's going to be a useful industry ledger, then it needs to be used by, you know, by the broader industry. Mm. Um, and when I was referring to collaboration, really, you know, we're seeing a lot of it in the UK. Um, I work quite closely with our group there. Um, consortiums of asset managers, investment managers have got together, um, and together with the regulator there, which I think is the game changer, to work on uh, making the industry more efficient. Um, we've seen uh, transfer agency businesses, well, that's where they're collaborating at the moment to use blockchain. A lot of these things are in sort of proof of concept stage, but uh, in the UK they've actually gone into um, live production around the institutional side of the, the liability management. Um, and, and I think, as I said, I think the, the collaboration is really people across the value chain um, not conspiring or not mm. um, price fixing, but actually working towards a, a platform that um, where, where there's no IP. I don't think there's any IP in the way we do admin, um, mm. but there's certainly opportunity to reduce costs uh, if worked well and using technology. Okay. Jason? Just if I may, um, just a brief segue. Um, I know that you know the impetus is around efficiency and all the rest of it, but I mean we live in a very unique country where there's huge inequality and things like that. So even at my previous employer, you know one of the major uh, innovation projects that we did was uh, around fractional shares, and to be able to access uh, that uh, very um, efficiently and 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 at good price and the platform fees were very low. So, you know, we've got a, a, a massive uh, population that had previously not been informed about investments as well. Um, and uh, they also need to be able to access the market, you know, with the 50 rands or the 100 rands out there. And so, um, uh, Michael, your darn is probably left, but uh, I was quite proud that, you know, we were able to take over the mantle and the prize the next year as an innovator uh, based on fractional shares. Mm -hmm. So, um, access is also a very important uh, part of the equation um, uh, that you need to address and, 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 and technology to actually help you get there mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, I mean, I think fractional shares are important, if you, especially if you're trading Berkshire Hathaway shares at $300,000 a share. So, yeah, I agree. Technology as an interface to clients. Maybe if we can just touch on that, and then I'll open up for some questions from the floor. So, the obvious one here is, is the robo-advice. You know, everyone's got um, ideas about robo-advice, but I think it's a little bit like AI. There's, there's a big spectrum of what actually entails robo-advice. Um, and people are putting the label robo-advice on things that are really just calculators. Um, so, you know, w where do we see that really going? Um, as I think it was Michael was saying, it's really just an algorithm that checks out a few questions and then gives you a, a basic investment recommendation. But it doesn't necessarily give you a fully comprehensive financial plan that takes into account, uh, you know, a lot of the more human side of things right now. Of course, in the future, that might be different. But maybe the question um, I'm going to ask uh, Neville, do you think asset managers should grab this robo-advice space, or do you think consultants and advisors should, or is it a battle, and it depends 
where we end up yeah. uh, at, at this stage, it's, it's uncertain. Look, it definitely creates an opportunity for the NASA management industry, particularly talking about an independent NASA manager that doesn't have its own tied distribution force to play in the distribution game mm. because uh, you get huge benefits of scale, obviously, um, and you know that's, that's the big thing about tech is, is the scalability. So uh, there's definitely a space for the independent asset managers and even those with distribution because arguably um, you know, the, the big space for robo-advice, I think globally everyone sees it, is in the, the lower income clients. So mm -hmm. regulations around the world we know has driven up effectively the cost of providing financial advice um, in order you know, to make sure that, that quality of advice is much better. There's, there's a whole lot more that has to go through. So you've effectively cut out a big chunk of the population that cannot afford to effectively pay for that advice. And that's where robo-advice really comes in. Um, so, you know, it, it's, I think it's, it, it will create a challenge to, to those companies which have big um, sales forces, particularly servicing the lower end of the market, um, but an opportunity as well. And I think, you know, coming just to the previous point around costs is, you know, just looking at the banks today as well, one of the big problems is how you phase this because you have a big chunk of your population mm. which is not comfortable dealing or just doesn't have the economic means to deal online so you have to maintain a physical presence and an online presence. So today, in a lot of industries, you find your costs haven't gone down because you're actually running both networks and you can't mm. cut all your branches at the same time. You have to keep investing. So um, it's, it, it hasn't necessarily brought that, that cost benefit through yet. Mm. Um, Megan, just maybe from the practical side of things, uh, you know, robo-advice tools, is that something that uh, the asset managers like yourselves are exploring at this stage? Or do you believe that you've already got a basic yeah. handle on that? Or is that not something you're even interested in, you're leaving that to the, to the advisors? I mean, we don't have a tight network as, 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 um, mm. as with Coronation. But you know, I think the, 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 the very basic sort of, call it investor direction, mm. is sitting there in tools on our website. Mm. Um, uh, you know, is it high risk? Is it low risk? Uh, you know, I don't really think that really appeals to the sophisticated investor or the investor with mm. with a large amount of money. We're not really um, playing in that in that that sort of easy equity space where you, you know, the sort of very low income side of things. I do think there's a huge opportunity for that there, mm. um, but it's not necessarily something we we specifically focused on at the at the moment. Um, I think as you you grow your direct retail book, obviously. There are other opportunities with tech that come with that. So mm. um, Michael mentioned earlier the chatbots. Um, I think ultimately if you've got a huge, um, uh, a huge call center, there's opportunity to leverage the tech there. Mm. Um, and whether people start using that in the advice space, uh, you know, I'm, I'm less convinced. I think it works for maybe an insurance product when, when you're working mm. through um, a specific um, type of insurance, but I'm not sure it works um, as well uh, if you're trying to look at an entire um, person's uh, mm. you know, financial planning of their entire um, lifestyle. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And Jason, I mean, obviously ABSA is very much in that space of the uh, low-income consumer market, but I know your focus is institutional, but is that something that uh, ABSA on the investment side is, is doing? Yeah, I think uh, just even internally inside APSA, I mean, we, we're trying to become one client-facing organization. We've ring-fenced a hell of a lot of money in, in, in favor of a digitization drive. 
um, um, around mobile to be able to access all of our products through that uh, specific app. Um, and uh, and yeah, but I think even aside from that, yes, in the institutional space, I don't think there's any sort of substitute for face-to-face -face interaction. Mm. I don't think there ever will uh, uh, that will ever be challenged as well. Um, but I think on the in the retail side of things, uh, you know, even though I'm a quant and, and uh, at heart as well, and, and, and even when I started my career, um, I'm a little bit more sober about like robo-advice robo also in the way it's been implemented now. I think it's just sometimes just a needs tool and then sometimes something gets bad out. But, you know, the, the generation I think past that is, is you, know, you know, when you start using it as well for if you're engaging in certain behavior, then your AIs can work in the background to say if you're also interested in this fund, others like you in a similar risk bucket have also been opting for this strategy. Um, and there's, there's a lot more critical. I think uh, analysis and thinking and, and understanding of what's happening in cons cons customers' behavior, and, I, and I'm not sure that I've seen too much of that next generation robo advice in the South African market. Yeah. So um, there's much to be said there. But even there, um, you know, we're all humans. So yeah. even if I'm a, uh, um, uh, um, I think hopefully not technologically challenged, um, I'm happy to use a tool. But at some point, I want to speak to someone still. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's my. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think you're right. We are all human at this stage, but given that the future we're looking at, we're not all going to be human in the future in terms of workers. But, um, and I think Kim's already halfway there, it seems, from a sleep point of view. She's already ad adopting robotic techniques there. Um, I'm standing because I'm conscious that we just need to open the floor for a few questions. So we only have a few more minutes left. So, yeah, questions? Hi, thanks. Um, just a question about the extent to which big data would allow for international fund managers to come and compete for the South African mandates. I mean, there's a home bias well established in terms of investors having a bias towards stocks in their own mm. countries, and obviously the extent to which South African analysts better know the South African environment better. Uh, how much to extent do you think that's going to be challenged by big data sets and uh, potentially big brands and lower costs uh, associated with that scale? Mm. Thank you. Anyone want to take yes. that? Yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily see it as being game-changing uh, for, for the domestic environment. I think, um, you know, again, there's still a, a localism that people like. I mean, to your point, you know, people like dealing with local people. And even, you know, we find the success of some of local managers with their global products, funny enough, is because South Africans would prefer to deal with a locally-based asset manager that's investing globally. And I think that's still uh, a big barrier. Um, secondly, you know, we know there are a number of global players here prevalent already playing in the market. So I think certainly in the institutional space, we've already seen the, the offshore element pretty much move to, to a lot of you know, uh, large global players. So to the extent that you say, you know, could a, a global manager offer a pure SA product that will perform in line? Um, yeah, obviously, you know, having access to, to that data, I think, will will position them should they want to. But, you know, if I look at the size of the SA economy, you know, I don't think it's necessarily going to be on the, you know, the top priority list mm -hmm. of any of the major players at the moment. They're much bigger economies with much bigger savings pools. So it's certainly not something that, you know, it's giving me sleepless nights today. Uh, I think Neville's covered uh, that question uh, completely. I can just sort of underline from a client perspective, um, 
I've spoken to at least four or five clients this year that have actually used um, those offshore managers on the active and the passive side. And just because of the fact that they don't have the local presence, um, they don't quite have the, um, the, the local relationship and the ability to, to impart to clients their understanding of what's happening in the portfolios, what are the new ideas, what are the risks, what are the guys seeing, what are opportunities. Um, they, 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 would, they love that sort of face-to-face -face interaction that can give them that depth as well um, and comfort. So um, from a client perspective, I can just uh, tell you what my experience has been there, Evan. Yeah, I mean, maybe if I can just add, I think the one interesting thing is that South Africa is behind the rest of the world in a lot of the trends, especially in terms of passive, the use of big data, smart beta even. I mean, it is. So there's a skepticism, I think, among South Africans at present. That might change, but certainly right now, I don't think that we're big adopters. You know, even to the um, point that Michael made about the black box side of what those returns South Africans are skeptical uh, they want to know what's going on and where those returns came from maybe that might change but uh, I don't think just yet well uh, Andrew I don't know if you want to thank your panelists otherwise I could thank them but guys really appreciate the inputs been very very insightful I want to comment on something Jason said but maybe once you guys have gotten found your places that'd be great let's give our panelists a round of applause mm, thank you There you go, Neville. Grab a gift on the way down. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. Are you getting a gift as well, or is that you, you skip, huh? There you go, Megan. <laughs> Thanks, Jason. There you go. Cheers. Great comment, by the way, that uh, idea of people still want to see people face-to-face. -face. There was a bank, there is a bank, called First Direct in, uh, in the UK. It, is a, it was one of the original telephone banks. Remember when telephone banking was a thing? years ago. They started like that, 24-7 access to bank over the phone. Uh, then they went to internet banking, and like, and like every other internet bank, they kept their phone number on their website. Uh, and the promise that First Direct made to their customers was that you can speak to a human being within three rings. And they held to that promise. And then HSBC, big, slow bank, bought First Direct and started putting pressure on them to go to IVR and to go to you know, the internet and to the web. And they refused, to such a point that the CEO was eventually hauled in front of the board to explain himself. And he stood up in front of this board, and instead of explaining himself, he told him this story. He said, on the uh, fateful day of September 11, uh, there was uh, an individual on the 12th story of one of the, the trade centers. And when the second plane crashed, a bit of machinery fell on top of her and pinned her down. Realizing she was in trouble, she had the wherewithal to take out her phone and she dialed one number. Do you know what number she dialed? First direct. Why? Because she knew that in three rings, she'd be speaking to a human being. Uh, the operator answered in three rings. She said, could you please get my husband on the line? I'm in real trouble. And she said, we've got your husband's details. We're calling him now. And she said, would you get my son as well? She said, we're doing that too. And a third operator came on and started, kind of kept conversing with this person just to make sure she didn't lose consciousness while a fourth operator called the emergency services and said, you need to be on the 12th floor. There's someone that needs your assistance. Long story short, 45 minutes later, they broke into the 12th floor, rescued this lady's life, all because she phoned a bank that promised a human being at the end of three rings. I like that story. Because for all the technology we have, we're human beings. We want to speak to another human being. And now you have a chance to speak to more human beings as you have lunch, by the way. So uh, lunch, <laughs> can you believe you got emotional at an actual conference? Lunch uh, t 
on the right-hand side. As you go out, just turn right and right again. There's a whole uh, separate hall for us. Help yourself. We will see you in an hour's time. Uh, almost an hour. We're going to get back at quarter to two. So 13.45, we'll see you back here. Enjoy your lunch.